This is it. Let me no, see. No, don't it. touch it. It's dangerous. It opens doors. What kind of doors? Doors to the pleasures of heaven or hell. I didn't care which. I thought I'd gone to the limits. I hadn't. The Cenobites gave me an experience beyond the limits. Pain and pleasure. Indivisible. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week our episode is about the film Hellraiser. But before we get into that, what's going on? Well, recently we had a trip to Providence, Rhode Island for the Necronomicon H.P. Lovecraft Festival. Yes, and what an event that was. It was just staggering. I mean, this was 3,000 Lovecraft fans there in Providence, Rhode Island, all at the same time. A lot of them there for uh, the fiction side of things, a lot of them there for uh, the film side of things, but a fair number of gamers as well, and some crossover between them. And, and dear God, yeah, it was overwhelming. I think I picked up on the word staggering there, which I think was pretty much my reaction after you dragged me round Providence for the first day. <laughs> my feet still haven't recovered. Yes, yeah. we, we, we did a an extended tour of Providence. And if you want to see little snippets of that, we did record some videos, uh, which are up on our YouTube channel. You can also see them on BlasphemousTomes.com, and we'll link to them from the show notes. It was great meeting so many people from other podcasts and other authors and just so many people that, well, A, that we knew their name already and all the people we didn't as well. A big thanks to Corey Welch for helping us out with accommodation. That was marvellous. Now, we've already put out from this Necronomicon show, we've already put out the live show that we did with Mr. Clonic University podcast. Uh, that was a lot of fun, and that went out on the podcast feed as an extra bonus episode. And we've got at least three more recordings of seminars that each of us, well, some of us participated in at the show. And we're going to record a short extra bonus episode where we're going to go into a little more of our experiences at Necronomicon. Yeah, so much happened there. There was so much that we saw, so many interesting people we met, that if we talked about it now, you know, it would just swamp the rest of the episode. Briefly now, you know, just thank you very much to everyone we met, everyone who introduced themselves, uh, everyone we were on a panel with. It was fantastic meeting all of you. And we will go into a lot more depth soon on that special episode. Oh, yes. Now, whether you were at Necronomicon or you weren't, you might be interested in a signed program from the show. Now, this program is signed by a host of Lovecraftian luminaries that were in attendance at uh, Necronomicon, and I'm going to sell it in aid of charity. And I'm going to sell it in aid of Cancer Research, um, the same charity that I sell Dockside Dogs online for, uh, a scenario for Call of Cthulhu. And I'm going to put up more details about this program on the blog post on blasphemoustomes.com. And we're going to sell it through eBay. 
So if you uh, look on the show notes for this episode, you'll find it there. Alternatively, if you take a look on eBay by the time this episode goes out, then just do a search for Necronomicon Sign Program or Paul's name and you should find it there. Thinking of Necronomicon and the fact that the stars were, literally in this instance, quite right with the eclipse happening one day after HBL's birthday, another conjunction happened that it's Gen Con was the same weekend, curses, as Necronomicon this year. And there, there was this little ceremony called the Ennies, I hear, that happened there. Mm. They might as well have rebranded it the Chaosium Award Ceremony this year versus the Pearl Grain Award Ceremony last year. But there were quite a few of the products that Chaosium won for that we all had a hand into varying degrees. Indeed. Best aid or accessory. Yep, that went to the Keeper's Screen Pack. Best art or cover. Went to the Investigator Handbook. Best cartography. Went to the Keeper's Screen Pack. Uh, so that was some fantastic work from there from Stephanie McCallie. Best electronic book. Uh, also Stephanie McCallie, uh, her company Stygian Fox uh, got this for the things we leave behind. Best Production Values. That was Call of Cthulhu 7th Edition Slipcase Set. And finally, Best Supplement. And that went to Pulp Cthulhu. Woohoo! So, yeah, I, we were delighted that, you know, all these products did so well and, you know, very happy to have had whatever role we had in each one of them. So, um, yeah, thank you to everyone who voted. And a few days after the release of this show, in Milton Keynes on the 16th of September, we have... Da, 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 concrete Cow. Yes, this is our uh, semi-annual uh, gaming convention uh, in Milton Keynes. It's a one-day event. Costs £5 to get in. Doors open at 9am. It's in the old bathhouse at Wolverton. We'll put the details in the show notes. If you haven't been long before, it's really easy to find. It's just by Wolverton Station. Alternatively, if you're driving, there's parking just outside. And later in September... Yeah, boy, it's a busy month for us this month. Um, comes the MK Literary Festival, where we've got uh, a few various things happening there. Yeah, this is the first ever literary festival that's being held in Milton Keynes. Got some small involvement with with the planning of it and and with uh, other ancillary activities. One thing that I'm doing is uh, I'll be talking to um, a local fantasy author by the name of A.F.E. Smith. Uh, she has written uh, a number of books, the Darkhaven trilogy, which presents some sort of interesting, uh, an interesting take on fantasy with a lot of political elements in there. So I'll be discussing you know, with her her inspirations and the the influence of real world politics on fantasy. That will be happening at seven p.m. on Saturday, the twenty third of September. And then on the following Monday, we're going to have a group seminar about Call of Cthulhu role-playing games and fiction at the Holiday Inn in central Milton Keynes at 7pm. Uh, that's free entry, so if you're around, please come along. And I think maybe we'll be able to record that, possibly put so. it out as a bonus episode. Yes, yeah, I believe we will. Okay. So, yes, yeah, we'll do that. We're, we're going to be joined by Mike Mason for that as well. Again, if you can come along uh, for that. I mean, we've been given a three-hour slot, and we're not going to talk for three hours. So our plan is to offer demo games afterwards to anyone who's interested. So, Matt, Hellraiser, the film, there's some themes of pain and pleasure in there, aren't there? Sounds a bit like singing. It does. But what's this? What's the next segment, Scott? There's no pleasure in me saying this, is there? No, but we get a lot out of it. It is the Lovecraftian word of the week. Quiescence. 
And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word is... Ecstasy! Not the little white tabs. It's a noun. One, rapturous delight. Two, an overpowering emotion or exultation. A state of sudden, intense feeling. Three, the frenzy of poetic inspiration. Four, mental transport or rapture from the contemplation of divine things. I, I'm sorry, I hardly listened to those definitions because I, I am now filled with mental images of Matt dancing the night away, fueled up on disco biscuits. <laughs> That's the Friday night in Necronomicon, yeah? <laughs> Lovecraft, with his peculiar suspicion of uh, anything religious and his general repression, I think, um, used ecstasy in shall we say, not very positive ways most of the time in his stories. Ecstasy in Lovecraft is rarely a good thing. Yeah, it's almost as if he's judging those uh, manifestations of overwhelming joy. Thou shalt not have fun! But it's also the, the religious aspect of it, this idea of giving yourself over to the sublime, that you know, I think, again, he views with, with some suspicion. Uh, when this happens in his story, it tends to be you know, blood-drenched, orgiastic affairs. Um, you know, it, it's not, not like the traditional view of religious transportation. It's the fact that you are driven by this ecstasy to do horror. When I think of reading H.P. Lovecraft A Life, Joshi's book about H.P. Lovecraft, when I think of Lovecraft's expressions of ecstasy, the thing that he seemed to enjoy most and seemed to put in the, in the most ecstatic state was returning from New York to Providence uh, on the train. He's so overjoyed and overwhelmed with emotion at returning to his, his beloved hometown. And this is a journey we're going to be taking only in a, in a week or two, to uh, Providence, mm -hmm. at time of recording. Yes, we'll see whether it transports us with the same degree of ecstasy. I, I, I imagine not, but at the same time, the anticipation of going to Necronomicon is, is mildly ecstatic. You know how I'm a really great traveller and I'm really engaging on such long trips. If I reply to most of your comments with a... <laughs> Then I'll think it's business as usual, man. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I'm a happy dreamer. What can I say? <laughs> Lovecraft uses the word ecstasy 11 times in his fiction, with eight other times with variations such as ecstasies and ecstatic and so on. So not one of his most prolifically used words, but when it crops up, it tends to be memorable. And now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word ecstasy in his writings. From Beyond the Wall of Sleep. At length, after temporarily felling one of his detainers with a sudden blow, he had flung himself upon the other in a demoniac ecstasy of bloodthirstiness, shrieking fiendishly that he would jump high in the air and burn his way through anything that stopped him. And from the Hound. An inappropriate hour, a jarring lighting effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod, would almost totally destroy for us that ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous grinning secret of the earth. And from the horror at Red Hook. 
Detectives assigned to follow him reported strange cries and chants and prancing of feet filtering out from these nocturnal rites and shuddered at their peculiar ecstasy and abandon despite the commonness of weird orgies in that sodden section. And now on to today's main topic, Hellraiser. Yeah, this is the classic 1987 film by Clive Barker. I, I say classic, I... Well, it's 30 years old now, and I, I, you know, this is me getting old. I, I don't think of it as being an old film, but it was quite sobering thinking that this was made 30 years ago. We'll be concentrating on the film Hellraiser itself, the original one. I will put in a few mentions to The Hellbound Heart, which is the novella that spawned Hellraiser. The film and and the book you know, spawned an entire franchise, and we could go down the rabbit hole following some of these links and talking about them, but we'll pretend for the purposes of our discussion that Hellraiser exists in isolation. But this is not the first Clive Barker film we've discussed. No, we discussed Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions back in episode 68. Mm-hmm. Well, this was Barker's first film as a director. Well, I say first film, it was his first feature film. He had done two shorts back in the 1970s, uh, Salome and The Forbidden. And he also wrote the scripts for a couple of feature films in the 80s, Underworld and Rawhead Rex. But those were both directed by George Pavlou. This was his first outing as as writer-director for a feature film. And it was really, I guess, quite an unusual thing. Barker had come from apparently nowhere at the time. Back in, you know, a few years before this, I mean, three or four years before, the books of blood had been released. And these were his initial collections of short stories. There were three to begin with, and then he did another three. And then he did a novel called The Damnation Game. From these, he developed an international reputation. I mean, really from the outset with the books of blood. And it's bizarre to me to think back to an age where a horror writer could become an international sensation by publishing collections of short stories. That just would not happen these days. And Barker was given you know, multi-million pound book contracts and the chance to make this feature film. His film career, as we talked about in, in the Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions episode, was brief. Uh, you know, it, it had some very strong entries in it, but ultimately he went back to being a writer. Even then, his styles changed quite considerably as well to, um, for the you know, latter part of his career. He's tended towards more kind of fantasy mm. than he has downright gritty, subversive horror. Hellraiser ended up spawning a franchise. There were another eight feature films that followed this of, shall we say, varying qualities. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's polite. <laughs> yeah. I know some of them are pretty good and some of them really aren't. There were comics, there was a collection of short stories uh, called Hellbound Hearts uh, by various authors. And of course, uh, you know, the Cenobites ended up reappearing in Barker's most recent book, uh, The Scarlet Gospels. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, this, this was the beginning, or at least you know, the Hellbound Heart was the beginning of something big. The box. You opened it. We came. It's just a puzzle box! Oh no, it is a means to summon us. And now we look at the synopsis of Hellraiser. Obviously we are going to spoil the, shall I say, hell out of this film. 
So if you've not seen Hellraiser before, either prepare yourself to have it completely ruined for you or go off and watch it now and come and join us in a few minutes. We'll, we'll wait. About we'll 94 you. minutes, if I recall. <laughs> So the film opens with our main man, Frank Cotton. Sleazebag. What? Sleazebag. Well, that'll be, that'll be revealed soon. I, I, uh, I, th- I think roguish rake. <laughs> that says a lot about you, Scott. <laughs> Sat at the table in a Moroccan, uh, perhaps, bar. Or cafe, yeah. And he's, he's being sold a curious box about the size of a Rubik's Cube on the table before him. Sorry, it's just suddenly the parallel between that and a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a very <laughs> a very kind of cheesy early 80s version of this that can be done now. Yeah, Hellraiser Rubik's Cube edition. I, I think I have actually seen someone do a Rubik's Cube done up with the designs <laughs> of, the, uh, of the box. Oh, jeez. Okay, so let's talk, I mean, just describe what this box looks like um i mean this is a wooden box with intricate metal work on it you know as we discover as the film goes on it's a puzzle box obviously frank takes this box and we see him now in a room all alone surrounded with candles in a ritualistic type pose and he's playing fiddling with the box trying to to work out what buttons to press or or how to open it yeah, I, and there is, I think, almost something sexual about the way he handles it, the way that he's rubbing his thumb around in circles, and it's almost like he is trying to tease the box into life, which actually turns out to be exactly what he's doing. I knew for a long time when I was uh, watching uh, watching this, when I was actually I think the first time I viewed it was when I was back in school, thinking, how could I make a copy of that box that actually does what it does in the film? <laughs> Short answer is, you can't! It's multiple boxes! It's so frustrating! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even if you did manage to do that, it probably wouldn't have any Cenobites in it. There you Let's... go, it's more, more letdowns. So he manages to trigger the box in some way. We see it moving, parts of it move, and strange things begin to happen. The mm. walls... Seem to bleed blue light through the the lath and plaster work around the walls, and then chains and hooks come out and hook into his flesh, and he is torn into pieces. Quite literally. Yeah, and we see these pieces splattered all over the ground, and we see these strange shapes walking through them, these leather-clad, pale shapes with things, metal things, rammed into their flesh, and obvious wounds and disfigurations. You've described a lot of LARPers that I know with that statement. (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe Cenobites are. Maybe that's their great secret. Maybe they're just LARPing all this. But these creatures, or at least one of them in particular, eh, this sinister-looking figure with all these nails hammered into his head, goes up and starts fishing through the pieces on the ground and and starts reassembling like a jigsaw bits of Frank's face. And once he's finished this macabre little jigsaw puzzle, he gets up with the box that we've seen earlier. It lifts up into two parts, he twists it, he puts it back down, and there's an empty room turned back to normal. This is, they will make a great cleaning service. I wish I could hire these people when I have stains like that on my floor. Well, except it doesn't clean up the whole house. It just cleans up this room, as we're about to discover. Mm-hmm. Because we go from this nightmare scene to something far more, shall we say, suburban. As this couple, a uh, middle-aged couple, arrive at a house in 
Well, I was about to say London, but we'll we'll cover that later. It's the classic moving into a, a new house. It's not a new house, but for the couple, they're moving into it. And it becomes clear that they're moving in, and through the dialogue, the, the couple... Uh, the man's brother was staying in the house for a while. This man's brother, he was called Frank. Yeah, it was, it was the, the old homestead is how he describes it. Yeah. So that he hasn't been there for 10 years, that he wanted to sell it years ago, but Frank never let go of it. And now that they're finally, that Frank has upped and done one of his, what was the quote? Famous uh, vanishing acts. Yes. Yeah, that he is now gone, that they think, oh, we might as well use the house for ourselves. Through this dialogue, I mean, one thing that we learn is the relationship between these people is perhaps not that healthy. We can see the fault lines to begin with. They're trying to remain amiable with each other, but it doesn't take very much conflict just in minor things for them to, you know, suddenly grow cold to each other. Really, this is where the true horror of this film is is first revealed, when the door opens and we see Julia stood there with that horrific 80s fashion and the <laughs> I, hair. I was going to make that point later when she uh, when she leaves the house on a couple of instances in these short scenes that you see these awful star earrings and the big glasses that she wears. Oh, Jesus. I, and the hairdo. I mean, the, the, the straight-up 80s hairdo, you know, lacquered to within an inch of its life. Yeah. Sticking up like uh, Jack Nance in a razor head. I was thinking it's like watching an episode of the Goldbergs all over again. It, oh, Scary, scary fashion. But searching around the house, they find some unpleasant things. They find rotted food, evidence that Frank had been there. And then Julia comes upon some old photos. Well, curious photos that show Frank. But then they show Frank with various women in sexual acts. Sexy selfies. And uh, she ends up taking one of these pictures, but ripping it in half. Very neatly in half, uh, just preserving Frank's face. And while all this is going on, Julia, the wife, her husband, um, Larry, Frank's brother, uh, receives a phone call, and it's from his daughter, uh, Kirsty, who is his daughter from another marriage, not Julia's daughter. So we know, immediately know there's going to be friction there between uh, Kirsty and his wife, Julia. Larry is trying to convince Kirsty to move in with them, but she doesn't want to. She says she's found her own place. and We get quite a few scenes of the moving objects, big heavy objects, into the house. And there's a couple of uh, removal guys helping out. And uh, some pretty, uh, again, lurid and very uh, sleazy removal men. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, Kirsty yeah. turns up at this stage. And you've got these two removal men just letching over her in front of her father. Well, and uh, even over Julia as well. Yeah. Hmm. And there's the scene where um, they're trying to move something upstairs, a bed, I think. It's the mattress. We, we constantly keep cutting to this big nail that's sticking out of the board. Larry's hand is kind of getting closer to it, closer to it, closer to it. But that does make you clench up in uh, anticipation of what is about to happen as he then gashes his uh, hand I, th open. This is a film filled with murder, supernatural manifestations, uh, yeah, sadomasochism, and the only bit in the whole film that made me flinch was that fucking nail. Yeah. yeah. I, this is actually probably one of my favourite bits of the whole film, actually, given the combination of... Because at this point, Julia's gone upstairs, um, having found that photo, and he's reminiscing of the time when Julia marries Larry. Larry. Yeah. 
and that's uh, showing how that those two have effectively had a relationship or at least had some kind of fling kind of then flicking back to the present and seeing her kind of really kind of reveling in the ecstasy of those memories and then the combined with the soundtrack at that point which is very lots of strings lots of high screeching and then rip on the nail yeah yeah yes both julia and her husband getting nailed at the same time so larry comes up with this bleeding hand into the room where julia is the room as we'll soon learn yeah the attic dripping blood onto the floorboards lots of it yeah (laughs) and we can see that this is the same room that we saw in the beginning the one where uh frank did his ritual and where we saw these creatures manifest and we see the blood mysteriously being sucked into the wooden floorboards. Again, this place is great for cleaning. Self-cleaning? Yeah. The fact, I was surprised that no one made mention of the fact that, oh, where'd all the blood go? <laughs> well, to be fair, they were probably a little distracted. So Julia takes Larry down to A&E. What we see, we see a very little bit, I think at this stage, under the floorboard, something is growing something is pulsating we start to see the floorboards are starting to uh not only have they cleaned themselves now they start to disassemble themselves the nails start flying out of them they start uh, they start bouncing around light shining up from underneath then this couple of puddles starts boiling up i think great you've cleaned it all up now you're making a mess again and probably one of the most uh special effects heavy shots of the film Mm. um where you effectively start to see a body being reconstructed from a puddle. I, it starts off spectacularly with this first one arm, then the other. These skeletal, almost... I mean, they, they remind me almost of the limbs of a spider, hmm. kind of shooting out from the ground. And then you're starting to push the rest up from this puddle of ichor. Yeah, because they don't even have fingers when they start. But, no. So the fingers come later. Yeah. And that so it starts to build a spinal column. It starts to grow ribs. You can see the skull, almost like a balloon inflating. And then, of course, the flesh going around that, the brain starting to manifest, and the whole thing clicking together like some nightmarish Transformer or Lego kit. And this is all accompanied by dripping with sort of pussy ooze. Uh, I mean, this is a very liquid, visceral scene. Gooey. Yeah, and I, this is, I, I think, one of the strong points of the whole film. I mean, this is a scene that was added... After the event, after the the shooting of the film was finished, because apparently New World Cinema, uh, who financed this, you know, liked what they saw of the rest of the film so much they sort of said, "All right, you know, here's an extra twenty grand to go off and you know put this really good special effects scene in." This was the result of it, and you know, thirty years on, you know, maybe because it's practical effects, I think this is still one of the most kind of viscerally unpleasant, if not kind of horrifying scenes that i've ever seen in a horror film so julia comes into the room and frank the the partially formed frank speaks to her and he bids her not to look at him because he knows he looks pretty gross but he impresses upon her that he can become whole and that, that he is frank and that he can be with her but he needs more blood who are you i said Don't look. Help me. Tell me who you are. Frank. 
It's better than demeanor. The dinner party downstairs, to be fair, dinner and, party is pretty crap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is the dinner party that that kicks off downstairs, and yeah, I mean, it's got a bit of you know fairly lame and utterly believable dinner party conversation in there. Um, one of the <laughs> one of the important things I suppose it does is it introduces the character of Steve, who is Kirsty's boyfriend. And I say important. Steve seems to exist in this film to be completely ineffectual. We'll probably revisit this, you know, in the few scenes in which he appears later on. But Steve is almost this non-presence in the film is fantastic. And I think this is very deliberate to try to make Kirsty into more of a heroic character, that she is supported by this complete wet blanket of a boyfriend who does absolutely nothing of use throughout the whole bloody film. Honestly, I'll, I'll dispute that statement. He does one great thing. He puts a cigarette inside his mouth and then pulls it out again. That's about the one thing he does do. He can do. He can do. <laughs> it was a cool tricks. trick. Yeah. So, so basically, he shoots his wad in the scene in which we see him for the first time, and after that, you know, it's just downhill. Yeah. So Julia now seems to become take on the role of being a serial killer. She goes around to bars picking up men, bringing them back to the house, leading them upstairs into the room with no bed and they're like no I like bed it. i like it on the floor <laughs> and yeah but they don't like it with the hammer to the back of the head so much no I, that is a very specific fetish did you like this So then Frank feeds on these uh, these poor unfortunates and becomes pretty much whole, except... Oh, piece by piece. Except yeah. no skin. Mm-hmm. But also, Julia's transformation through all this is almost as remarkable as Frank's. In that, you know, the first time she goes out to do this killing, that she's, you know, very reluctant, uh, she's quite frightened, uh, she is repulsed when... Frank pounces uh, after she has really hesitantly whacked someone in the head with a hammer. And by the time we get to her third kill, I, it's not just that she's become inured to it, she is positively enjoying it. She has embraced this. She has tapped into her inner serial killer. I think it's only, it's only shown in a couple of um, scenes exactly what Frank does. You see these couple of shots, no more than a second or so at a time, where he's ramming his fingers as almost merged with the flesh around the uh, the back of their neck. That he seems to almost meld with them as he starts to suck them dry. Yeah, and leaves these husks behind, mm. these sort of wet, withered mummies. So a couple of times before the climax of the film, we see this curious homeless guy with a weird stare um, who in Kirsty encounters. Uh, in random places and i'm not really sure what to make of him he just seems to observe her and freak her out by eating locusts in the pet shop and just being generally creepy and the other scene we get you know in between all these murders is another scene with kirsty where she has a dream this sort of weird surreal prophetic dream and apparently barker shot this as his tribute to dario argento yeah it does have a bit of an argento feel to it ultimately this this thing this scene where she sees her father but it's not really her father anymore is it that his skin's all wrong and it's not sitting right on him the consume lightning spell really didn't go well with that <laughs> casting, did it? After having committed now several killings, uh, Julia confronts Frank and says quite, um, quite pointedly, you promised me answers. 
In other words, give me some plot dump here. Go on, explain what the hell is going on. <laughs> he explains how in the search for pleasure and search for sensation, he learned about this box, the puzzle box that we saw at the beginning of the film, and that by opening it, he has summoned what he refers to as Cenobites, um, these creatures that are able to give him the pleasure he wants, or at least what he thought he wanted. Um, that there is no division between pain and pleasure, and that it was a complete overload for him, in a sense, so much so that I say it tore him to pieces. But because it wasn't what he truly wanted, he now wants out. And that the blood being spilt by his brother at the beginning um, at the beginning of the film is what's allowed him to come back. And he's saying that we have to get this done quickly. You have to commit more murders for me and do it quick because they're going to come looking for me. And it starts this urgency, this kind of countdown ticking away in the background. And then this is all going to plan until Kirsty turns up one day and sees Julia bringing a victim home. So we have another murder scene upstairs where Julia is hammering this man in the head. He seems to be quite angry about it and fighting back, so it's making a bit more noise. Kirsty basically breaks into the house, goes upstairs to investigate what all this noise is, and encounters the victim trying to flee as Frank drags him back into the room. And she goes around the corner and sees Frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, which the the first of the lines used that's uh, repeated later in the film. He's me. He's Uncle Frank. You remember? Come to Daddy. Come to Daddy. Oh my God. Frank at this stage basically turns on Kirsty. We we don't know what his exact intention is, but it certainly seems predatory. She grabs hold of the puzzle box, which Frank has got. It's there in the, the attic. Just lying on uh, the floor. Yep, and throws it, uh, and it goes, it smashes out the window, lands outside. Frank, at this stage, loses his shit. Kirsty takes the opportunity to run outside, grabbing up the puzzle box as she goes, and basically flees off down the street, before ultimately collapsing. We then see her waking up in a bed with a nurse, and it's all a bit surreal. It's actually a hospital, isn't it? But, yeah, it is, apparently. She's in hospital. And the doctor comes in and curiously sort of says, oh, you know, you you need to stay in bed and and rest. And, by the way, you had this curious box with you, which he puts on the the laptop table. Now, I mean, it's interesting that you say, you know, is it really a hospital? Because, I mean, you know, it's this strange tiled room that she's in. The nurse is sitting there watching this this sort of soundless loop of flowers blossoming on the television. The doctor comes in. Kirsty immediately says, oh, yeah, I, I need to call my father. And... Instead of saying, oh, yes, yeah, we better get in touch with him. No, the first thing he does is hands her the puzzle cube and sort of says, maybe this will jog your memory. I mean, none of this really makes any kind of logical sense. It's either really bad writing or there is a hell of a lot more to this hospital room than it seems. So she picks up the box and starts again, like Frank did earlier, trying to manipulate it. And she does so. And we get some great environmental effects here with the the grouting between the tiles on the walls starting to glow and a, a flush of blood going up the IV drip. And suddenly the, the wall opens and there's like a passageway into 
well, into hell. Into infinity. And she ends up kind of walking into it and being chased back by some monstrous thing. This is described perhaps a little more, or at least the creature is mentioned a little more in the short story or the the novella. Uh, And this is an entity called the Engineer. In the story, it does seem to be, you know, the leader or the controller of the Cenobites. In the film, I don't know, it's just this kind of gribbly that runs down corridors. A very ineffective gribbly as well. It can't catch up with someone, and later on in the film can't even pass a single regular dex check. It's really (laughs) shit. (laughs) So then she's back in her hospital bed. She she runs back to the hospital room from this corridor, and, of course, the Cenobites appear, and there's uh, Pinhead, and they're going to rip her soul apart, but she manages to negotiate with them. You know that guy, Frank, that you used to have? You haven't got him anymore. He's out. So they're like, well, where is he? So she manages to bargain with the Cenobites that she'll give them Frank on, if they on, let her live. On a condition, though, that he says, I want to hear him confess. I must hear it from his own lips. And the Cenobites also tell Kirsty a little bit more about what they are. Describing themselves as, what is it? Explorers. Explorers in the furthest reaches of sensation. Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. It was a mistake! I didn't, I didn't mean to help it! It was a mistake! You can go! We can't. No, no, no. You solved the box. We came. Now you must come with us. Taste our pleasures. Go, go away and leave me alone. And, yeah, I, this is not your usual movie monster, is it? Demons to some, angels to others. This whole scene, I mean, all the dialogue that Pinhead gets here is amazing. I and mean, this is you know, one of the most intensely quotable scenes in cinema. It's interesting, though, because you get so much out of the scene. I remember from watching a um, an interview with Doug Bradley that one of the main things that... Uh, Clive Barker said to him on the set when he was doing any of his portrayals of Pinhead was always do less, do less, do less Well, and the thing is that that actually makes it all the more powerful because if someone is in a position of true authority they don't need to show it Pinhead barely moves uh, his facial expression doesn't change much his voice doesn't modulate much, I mean it is this, this booming intense voice, but he's not shouting, he's not really raising it this is, you know, it's just resonant Uh, This is a character that is used to authority. He is used to being obeyed. He is in control. He doesn't need to do anything to prove that. Mm. And that makes him all the more compelling. Uh, There is, I think, this real subconscious thing that when you see someone behave like that, it attracts your attention. So we cut back to the house, and there's Julia's at home, and Larry comes home, and Julia takes Larry up to the attic to have a look at a few things. Dun-dun-dun... And then Kirsty turns up. Well, Kirsty's got the box, hasn't she? And she's trying to track down Frank. Then she meets her father, apparently, and Julia. And they're like, oh, yeah, Frank's dead. And she's a bit frustrated by this because she wants Frank because she wants to get the Cenobites off her back by giving them Frank. But her father's acting a bit weird. His he's vocal fine. mannerisms have changed. There's blood around his head. Yeah, hairline. he's got a bit of blood on his headline, but, and you know, these things happen. And there is that, that wonderful scene where he looks around into the mirror and basically adjusts his eyeball and there's this sort of popping noise as he does so. 
Yeah, he's not what he once was. Oh. Not the man he used to be. But then he gives himself away. He starts um, pressuring Kirsty to, to stay and stop making a fuss. But then he, he kind of gives himself away, doesn't he, Matt? Yeah. Come on here. Come to daddy. Ah, and this is where Kirsty realises that Larry isn't with us anymore. In fact, he's the stinking pile of uh, doo-doo upstairs. Of course, there's then a little bit of a confrontation. Julia grabs hold of uh, Kirsty, trying to hold her back. She quickly uh, sidesteps as dear old Frank, who again fails his uh, fighting brawl check, ends up stabbing Julia and decides, oh, well, I've stabbed you now. I might as well suck on you now. The girls rip part of my face off. I might as well try and, uh, try and recover a bit of blood and ends up draining Julia dry. Yeah, Frank's like plenty more fish in the sea. Yeah, nothing personal, babe. <laughs> And then there's um, a bit of a chasing upstairs, which involves uh, Kirsty meeting Jesus, or at least you know a statue of him that falls out of a cupboard as she's trying to hide. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, stumbling over a corpse that vomits maggots down her cleavage. And has still miraculously got his eyeball intact, even though it's been <laughs> up in the attic for days. The rest of it's rotting, but the eye's fine. Staring. Magic, Matt. Magic. Yeah. We now have Kirsty and Frank alone in the attic with her father's dead skin body. And, you know, it still looks like Larry. So Kirsty is trying to get Frank to say his name, to say that he is indeed Frank, because she knows the Cenobites are listening. And indeed, he, you know, fesses up. Without much prompting either. Yeah, well, that, he's that, proud, actually, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, that's actually the, the almost the irony of this, that she doesn't have to trick him into it, or that he just can blurts it out. Daddy! <laughs> no, don't mourn him. He was dead long before we ever touched him. Bastard! Oh, hush now. Everything's all right. Frank's here. <laughs> Bastard! Your dear old Uncle Frank. What the hell is that? And then suddenly those lights start coming through the wall again and up through the floorboards, and we know who's coming now. Frank is hooked once again by the Cenobites. And, man, is he hooked. I mean, he's basically suspended by various hooks into his flesh. As he runs to attack Kirsty, one of the hooks pulls him back, and soon he's kind of hanging midair and and loads of hooks distorting his face. I think probably one of the single most graphic and just skin crawling lines that I can think of from a horror film. But again, as you say, his face has been uh, pulled apart. He licks his lips and with glee just uh, almost hisses, Jesus wept. Which apparently was improvised by Andrew Robinson. Uh, that Clive Barker actually scripted it. That you know he, he told uh, you know Kirsty you know fuck you or something like that. <laughs> and no, no. He, instead, uh, Frank decides to quote the single shortest verse from the Bible. So now the the Cenobites have got Frank, and they're after Kirsty, and she has the magic box, <laughs> which she can release magic from to make them zap away to the dimension from which they come. After she steals it from Julia's body, which is now miraculously teleported onto a bed, onto a mattress upstairs, and has also been chained apart. And at some point, her doofus boyfriend turns up <laughs> and doesn't really do very doesn't much. do much he, he does he does prove a point though the fact that this house is so insecure that even a doofus like him can break in through the kitchen door like kirsty did earlier that kitchen door is a real hazard for well he's not the only around. one breaking in through the kitchen door right 
because there's the the big gribbly monster again. Oh yes. Oh yes. And yeah. there's a bit of a you know a bit of a dramatic struggle over the box as Com- she's she's feebly trying to grab it and the gribbly monster is feebly trying to grab it. But Comedic ultimately, yeah. ultimately she does and big gribbly monster is well vanquished back yeah. to where it came from. And, and it's worth saying that you know the the way that she vanquishes first the Cenobites and then uh, the engineer is by basically undoing the the puzzle box that she's just reversing the solving procedure and putting it resetting it back to its original state. Apart from Butterball, he is the only Cenobite that's defeated by a falling beam. I talked before about how good the special effects were. The special effects in this bit, I mean, we, Paul and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, you said you quite liked this Yeah, I bit. rather like them. I, mean, uh, I was thinking about it, and it, you confirmed what I was thinking, that they were just hand-drawn special effects onto, onto the film, you know, pre- the CGI that we would now expect. Oh yeah, I mean, this was Clive Barker himself sitting there with a bit of paint, painting these onto the cells. I think it's quite cool. I quite like that effect. Yeah, yeah. It's quite organic. Uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, it looks quite distracting compared to the rest of it. I but um, it, yeah, I can got... see your point. Then we cut to the final scene, either on a bit of waste ground, or or is it indeed the house has burnt down yeah. and that's all there is left to it? I, that's what is, I'm thinking. That's that's a really fantastic question, and. In the director's commentary, uh, the, the um, Atkins, who is, is interviewing Barker, asks that question, and Barker kind of stops for a moment and says, I don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> There's, there is a bit of a giveaway if you look at the background. Um, that in the shots that you've seen of the house, everything's in fair isolation and there's always an empty sky behind. Mm. Whereas in the last shot in this wasteland, you can see a, uh, what looks to be a, a motorway or dual carriage flyover in the background. But at the same time, in this bit of wasteland, there are items of burning furniture sitting there, so who the fuck knows? A burning chair. Yeah. Just randomly burning chair. But fortunately, you know, there are these fires, so Kirsty tosses the puzzle box into the fire. But That's then, the end of the film, right? Except that vagrant that we said would pay off. Ah, the vagrant. Yeah, he's back. Yeah. Burning vagrant. Yeah, he steps into the fire, grabs the puzzle box and goes up in flames, revealing... Something else. Some big skeletal dragon thing. A bikey! Yeah. Yeah, it does look like one, really. Yeah. What's that all about? This this is apparently the guardian of the box. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, he grabs hold of it and flies off, uh, protecting the box from the fire. And we're back with the opening scene with that place in Morocco with the guy with the box on the table selling it to some new buyer. What's your pleasure, sir? You can't leave me like this, you can't. Well, now let's have a chat about our impressions of the film and give a few items of background on it. I love one of the points that you've uh, noted, Scott, as to the working title and suggested titles of the film. I think they're great. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, let's put this in context. New World Cinema didn't want to call the film The Hellbound Heart to begin with. Even though that was the, the title of the story it was based on, they thought that people would see that and think that it was a romance story. Ah, I would have thought that would have been a good news anyway. (laughs) So, So instead, Barker came up with a working title, which was... Sadomasochists from beyond the grave. <laughs> but um, obviously this was a bit tongue-in-cheek, and they settled on the title Hellraiser. But even then, New World didn't particularly like the name Hellraiser because they were a bit worried that, with the word hell in there, that it would play badly in the more religious parts of the American South. 
<laughs> I know. Yeah. But um, so they did actually at some point ask for suggestions from the crew as to a, another possible title for it. And apparently one, uh, according to the director's commentary, one very English production assistant uh, in her 60s kind of piped up and suggested that they should call it What a Woman Will Do for a Good Fuck. Because, yeah, it's all about Julia wanting to get it on. <laughs> Yeah, the question of the setting is a curious one because as I was watching it, I was making a few notes and uh, that opening scene, after the opening scene, we cut to the house and I jotted down in my notes, cut to London and then very quickly kind of scrubbed that out and said, nope, because it does appear like a very stereotypical British house um, and it all seems to be set in Britain. But then everybody seems to have an American accent. What's that all about? Yeah. And yes, the answer is that the film was shot in London, shot on location, and the story is is set in London. The film started out that way. But apparently, you know, going back to what we were saying about New World, worrying about how uh, the film would play in rural America, another thing that they insisted upon was redubbing the voices of all the British actors or all the British supporting actors. Uh, with American accents, because they thought this would make it more palatable to an American audience. Hmm. Although there are some telltale signs that still show its uh, British origins. Um, Unless they've imported British rail trains to America, for one thing, and also some street signs as well, look for the underpass Mm. uh, that they uh, they go through. Distinctly British. I think another interesting thing, though, about where it was shot, most of it wasn't done on stages. It was shot in this house in Dollis Hill. This, I I think, makes it a very unusual film visually. Where you've got a film that's shot on a stage, you've got a lot more movement with the cameras, uh, and you get uh, a wider breadth of shots. With this, I I don't know about you, I, I felt that, I mean, all the stuff that takes place in the main house itself feels very claustrophobic. Yeah, I think that lends itself well to the the feel of the film, really. I think yeah. it's very effective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's also not got much of a colour palette in the house as well. It's all very dirty colours. Mm. Yeah. Which, yeah, feels like 1980s Britain to me. Yeah, again, reinforced by that god-awful fashion. Now, what is a Cenobite? As far as I know, it's just one of these monsters from the film. According to the dictionary, a Cenobite is a monk or a member of a religious order. And this really does sort of apply here. I, we're not mm. given the name in the film, but in the original story, we even hear that they are a member of an order, uh, the wonderfully named Order of the Gash. <laughs> now, that, that is, I think, a bit of wordplay that really sort of sums up the Cenobites. I mean, you know, both gash is a wound and gash is a slang term for female genitalia. It's that play between violence and sex, you know, blood and lust. Mm-hmm. that is there at the heart of what the Cenobites are. There's also the costume as well that I'm particularly thinking of Pinhead, that he is wearing almost a monastic robe, admittedly leather, admittedly the front of it's been opened and you can see this, uh, the flesh underneath being torn apart and so, and so on. But the general shape of it very much it does bring about a re- religious connotation. Yeah. In fact, there was some footage that were shot but never used, uh, that shows the Cenobites in these monastic cells, waiting until they're called. But their cells, the walls are covered in blasphemous images. This is just 
what they do until they're called. They are there in amongst this, you know, this blasphemy that they've they've created. Now, the main character of Pinhead, the main Cenobite, he's not called Pinhead in the film. He's not called Pinhead in the credits. Uh, apparently, Barker doesn't like the name Pinhead for him. Yeah. But, you know, that's what we all know him as, right? That's all we, everybody knows who Pinhead is. So he's become a, a, an icon from this film, but that's not what he's called in the film. No, in the script, he's called The Priest, though that name is never actually used. I mean, I guess at the time they didn't realise that he was going to become such an iconic image. Mm-hmm. No. Uh-huh. Well, and, and also, I mean, his representation is very, very different from what you, you see in the book. In the book, Pinhead uh, is actually female, or at the very least, has got a voice as being described as being like that of, I think, an excited girl. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more, seemingly a lot more depth that just doesn't come to the, the screen in this. Again, looking at a documentary that I watched with Doug Bradley relaying his experience about how he got involved in the film. Um, as it happens, Doug Bradley actually went to school with Clive Parker. Um, so was there from the start where he was uh, writing, directing and starring in his own uh, school plays. And that this was also Doug's uh, first feature film. The discussions that they had between them where Barker revealed a lot more of the background to Doug and said, well, actually, you know that Pinhead was a, or at least the the priest in this case, um, was human before this all began and gave him enough hints and tips and kind of little drip feeds of information to help him really build his performance and get that psyche in his mind. But the name Pinhead was actually something that the crew came up with on the set as a nickname for the character, and it just sort of stuck. Uh, the nickname that didn't stick was for the female Cenobite, <laughs> um, and they apparently nicknamed her Deep Throat. Uh, yeah, given the uh, the open wound on the uh, on the throat, uh, at least in the makeup, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 one yeah, didn't spawn a franchise. But Pinhead, well, Pinhead is now Pinhead. Mm. Yeah, no matter what Barker may think. But it's fascinating to me how much Pinhead became a phenomenon. That yeah, you know, the Cenobites were not the star of this film. They were a plot device. And the popularity of them I mean, took Barker and, and Bradley by surprise. I mean, Bradley didn't even want to play Pinhead in the first place. He wanted to play one of the moving men because he thought that would be better for his career because people would be able to see his face. Huh. Um, but, I mean, they are the stars of the show, really. I mean, the rest of it is fairly mundane, except for Frank, who is half the film is kind of a gooey, half-formed, uh, monstrous character but he's you know he's just kind of a bloody human mess really these other things these cenobites definitely stand out as me you know we haven't seen anything quite like them before so they really stand out they stand out but in terms of screen time um, oh sure in in, in a 95 minute film they're on screen for what five minutes but then how much is the alien on screen in alien Hmm. probably not that much you know but but even then in terms of the threat the menace and the you know the 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 driver in the story you know it's frank and julia all the way through Mm. they're the you know they're the main villains the cenobites are there to sort of tidy things up afterwards um i mean we were talking earlier it, it strikes me that there's almost a parallel in the way this franchise developed to friday the 13th it's maybe not quite as extreme but in friday the 13th jason Voorhees is the iconic killer throughout the franchise but he's only there in the last 10 seconds or so of the film he's not actually the murderer in the first film spoilers oh yeah sorry <laughs> and uh, that, that that was 35 years ago i think the statute of limitations is over on that one i've still not seen it Oh, well, I can't help that. <laughs> but you know what this reminds me of more in terms of characters that were in the original 
for a little while, but then went on to spawn like you know their own franchise. Scott, it's more like the Minions, really, from Despicable Me. Because in the first <laughs> film, they don't really feature that heavily, and we see a bit of them, don't we, Matt? Yeah, but, but, but then, you know, they, they, they we see more of them in the second film, and then they have the whole, you know, the Minions movie. But one of them, you know, one of these creatures is a source of endless, eternal suffering and woe, you know, that, that, that can reduce me to quaking terror. Mm. And the other way is leather. <laughs> the other one's a Cenobite. <laughs> you should see the third one when they start having ball gags. Yeah, it goes real... real <laughs> That really is a mashup of Minion and <laughs> Cenobite. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we talked about a couple of the changes that uh, the studio insisted that Barker made. Uh, one of the other ones, which, like the dubbing of the accents, I feel made the film worse, is they changed the soundtrack. I mean, Christopher Young did this fantastic orchestral score, and, and you know, if, even if you've not seen Hellraiser, you probably recognise it if you heard it. It's a fantastic score. It's not the original score from the film. Uh, originally, Barker uh, commissioned the industrial band Coil uh, to do the music. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, the studio thought it was just too weird. And, you know, I, I don't think anything's too weird for Hellraiser. I'd love to see a restored version with uh, the, the Coil themes in there. Don't look at me. Now let's see what we can take from Hellraiser for our gaming. One of the things that really grabs me about Hellraiser, which I think could inform Call of Cthulhu games quite a lot, is this mismatch of expectations that fundamentally Frank's undoing in the first place is that he has got hold of the Le Marchand box, this, this puzzle box, believing that it will be a gateway to pleasure. The problem is that Frank has got a very different idea of what pleasure is than the Cenobites. The Cenobites describe themselves as explorers you know, of new sensations. Hmm. And this, you know, this includes... I, it, it comes through a bit more in the story that, you know, the, 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 when Frank first encounters them, he experiences this, this complete sensory overload, that they turn all his senses up to maximum, and that you know, sound, touch, sight, everything becomes so overwhelming. Hmm. And that's even before the pain. But they are about maximum sensory experience. And to them, you know, pleasure is pain, pain is pleasure. And the things they're doing to him are things that they would consider to be pleasure. He wouldn't. So how are you taking this into gaming? Well, I'm thinking, with the mythos being so completely alien, that there are a lot of opportunities for horrific and tragic miscommunications like this. And it strikes me that the most obvious mythos parallel here is potentially with Amigo. In The Whisper in Darkness... It's easy to see what the Miko do to people as not being evil. They are providing new experience, new sensation, new opportunities by you know, taking people out of their bodies, putting them in cylinders, you know, flying them across the stars. If you extrapolate from that, what else is there you know, in terms of surgery and modification that the Miko could do to a human being that they might consider to be benign, interesting, something that the person would not object to, that... You know, the subject, as a human being with different perspectives, would find unutterably fucking terrifying. Mm. We have such sights to show you. But first we must remove your brain, put it in a canister, and then make sure we've got the right attachment plugged in at the time. But then you will see some things. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, one of the things that struck me watching this was Frank, in his sort of proto-state, is almost like a ghoul come vampire, but he's this decrepit sort of half-formed thing that, that regenerates as he consumes human beings. But he doesn't stay in that state. It, it, it regenerates him. So it's very different to our vampire or ghoul. But imagine having a vampire or ghoul in your game that if they don't feed, they quickly kind of disintegrate and become this horrific thing. But as they feed, they become more and more and more human. Uh, but then obviously they have to get human skin to wrap themselves in. That's a pretty cool monster right there. If you wanted to bring the horror even more to the players, that you know one or more of the players is affected by something that requires them to do this are they willing to let their bodies decay and fall apart or are they willing to spill the blood of others uh, in order to make themselves whole roll on that sand loss the other thing that he reminded me of taking this back to lovecraft was joseph Kerwin from the case of charles dexter ward because you have this this relative, albeit an ancestor in this case rather than a brother, who you know comes back from the dead and steals the identity of one of the central characters, pretending to be them. You know that 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 is exactly what Frank does in this. It strikes me that you know using the essential salts and all the you know horrible stuff from the case of Charles Dexter Ward, you could do a very Lovecraftian version of Hellraiser. Now we saw, as Frank was coming back, it's only Julia that's seen him. And she goes out to get these poor guys back to the house, knock them on the head, feed them to Frank. And at that point, I know because I've seen the film before that, you know, this is actually happening in the story. But I'm thinking, you know, is this just Julia's insanity? Is she just imagining there's this person in the attic that she's got to feed? So, I mean, I can imagine contriving in some way to, to give the player character a delusion in Call of Cthulhu that they've got to feed this person or something like that. Some some motivation for them yeah. to do this and keep it secret. Or if you want It'd to be a great insanity. Yeah, I mean if you wanted to twist the knife even more, that instead of doing it for, you know, venal reasons or, you know, in this case, sexual reasons, that you're doing it for noble ones. Uh that, you know, perhaps you, know, you believe that you, know, you are sp- staving off you know, some greater evil by performing these sacrifices, that there is this thing that is going to destroy your town or the world unless you make the sacrifices to it. Well, this is almost going back to what uh, Tor Nielsen suggested to us a, a while back on the Google Plus group, uh, with the Cthulhu cult potentially making sacrifices you know, out, out of deluded reasons. I do, I do quite like Paul's parallel. That it's almost you could taking away cursed is finally discovering what's going on take that out of it and you do almost have a tyler durden kind of moment here mm. that julia has been reminiscing far too much and so sort of reveling in those memories of frank and desperately longs for him that that uh, that want and that desire some inside her something snaps and that it's only ever her that sees frank yeah. this in inverted commas mm. frank up in the attic and that, yeah, it's a real kind of Tyler Durden love story. There. And early on, it is always her with the hammer that's actually killing the guys that she brings back. Yeah, of course, they just fall to the ground at that point. Frank descends yeah. on them. And, yeah. yeah. Is there really a Frank, though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know this because Frank knows this. Another thing that sort of rung a, a bell for me in this was something I find myself doing an awful lot in games myself, that Kirsty ultimately sort of solves her problems by pitting two sets of antagonists against each other. 
And certainly, you know, I, as a player, this is something I do an awful lot in games. Any opportunity I can. If there is a, you know, an environment with multiple antagonists, um, you know, opposing factions, uh, you know, different groups of people are pissed off for whatever reason, I will generally try to find ways of bringing them into conflict with each other with the hope that one will wipe out the other and get so weakened in the process that, you know, I stand a chance against them and in call of cthulhu in particular this strikes me as being you know if it's available to you a very useful tactic because most of the time if you are up against a lovecraftian horror you're probably going to die taking it on but if you can find you know something else nasty that is opposed to it and get the two in the same place and stand back yeah i mean this is good this is advice for players rather than keepers mm. See, this is where i've been going wrong all these years i just shoot whichever one monologues first and then deal with the other one you need to let the monologue to each other, Matt. Yeah. Oh, no! Feedback loop! <laughs> Doesn't that make it a dialogue, then? No. <laughs> <laughs> Only if they listen. <laughs> yeah, they're just both preparing speeches at each other at yeah. the same time. One thing I think that especially would be um, good advice for keepers here, especially if you're using your own monsters, where it is something new, such as the Cenobites were back in the day when, when the film was released... Their visual description, their visual appearance is really iconic. So having that level of detail, having that level of intricacy, but also, as we've discussed, the fact that, say, Pinhead's robes are a bit like a priest's, um, that they have uh, warped their own bodies in certain ways to further um, accentuate their, se- uh, their sensation. Having something like that coming up with a really crystalline view of what your monster is, I think, adds a so much weight to a game. Well, and, and the fact that there's a lot of thematic purity there as well. The fact that he has started off in this idea that they're a religious order that is about physical sensation and just extrapolated and everything about their appearance and their actions is built upon that. Mm. And that they look so different to each other. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they're not just, oh, we've got Migo from the third, Migo from the left. Yeah, or, each Cenobite is unique. And one of the things that you know, particularly struck me about this film that I don't see used, I think, enough of my taste in Call of Cthulhu is that while you do have these cool monsters in the form of the Cenobites in this and you know, potentially the engineer and the other creature at the end, that it is fundamentally a tale about human evil. And it is a gothic horror story with very human terms. Uh, you know, it's, it's supernatural, sure, you know, some, someone trying to bring her, her lover back from the dead. But, um, you know, it, it is human beings at the centre of it. It's, it's human actions. It's kind of uh, Frank's made a kind of Faustian pact, hasn't he? Made a deal with the devil kind of thing, the devil being the Cenobites in this yes. case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, th- they're changed by their exposure to the unnatural, the preternatural. This intrudes upon their lives in interesting ways, which, which adds a, a, a sort of spice to the whole thing. I don't think there are that many Call of Cthulhu scenarios that do the same thing. I, I know, you know, that you, you've certainly written some, and I've I've written a few, Paul. But um, you know, um, and I'm, I'm sure you must have met. You know, it's fundamentally about human misdeeds, and the mythos is is almost set dressing for it. And I think that the Cenobites themselves. I mean, we talked about it being human. Usually, our cultists are just regular humans. Well, the Cenobites here. It's not really clear in the film whether they were once humans that have become these Cenobite creatures or whether these Cenobites are kind of demons. But I think, you know, from other references, we take it they were once human. Mm. And they've become these strange 
otherworldly things. But what in the mythos changes like that? We have humans perhaps changing into ghouls, humans, well, kind of changing into deep ones, but, you know, that's in their bloodline already. Um, But something by one's volition that one can become other than human and not just, like, learn a few spells or just get some sort of weird little talent, but actually become virtually a, a mythos entity... The only other example I can think of is through the gates of the Silver Key, where Randolph Carter meets the Ancient Ones. That The rumour is that they have passed through the Ultimate Gate and ascended to this position of almost godhood. Ah, yes. Do we meet those, though, or are they just spoken of? No, he sees them. They sit on pillars while they watch him perform the rites right. to open the gate with Tumat Atlawir. Yeah. But it'd be nice to have some of that you know, more in the games, I think, because often in our games we have these very big monstrous things you know star spawn and dimensional shamblers and so on then we have some human scale things like deep ones and ghouls and so on but but have things that were once human i think that's that's a that's a pretty strong theme to have in the game i think because they're they're more you know they're more human i guess so if you wanted to for example create a cult that you know maybe wasn't directly based on the Cenobites, but inspired by that. These people who have learnt knowledge, have have you know sought out something greater than themselves, and have been lifted outside perhaps space, normal space and time, have become something more than human. How how would he go about you know using something like that in a game? I think figuring out what they were pursuing to start with, what their agenda was when they sort of what path they went down i mean the the cenobites have kind of gone down the the pain and pleasure route doesn't necessarily have to be that it could be something else but that kind of informs how they then relate to and interact with humans afterwards doesn't it i'd be fairly careful on the power level involved think thinking of the example about the ancient ones the ones that have ascended to this kind of godhood state um I would almost see, I think, the line that you've used in Cult before, where, where we had, um, I think it was actually my PC in your game, ended up taking a place of Elictor, um, being very much transformed in that. The, the line you used was, yes, I'm an, and I'm a vengeful god. Um, that almost, you have someone who's got that kind of power level, doesn't want to share it with some other peon that rises up to that level. Mm. So you might even use the, one of these as a MacGuffin to try and stop another NPC trying to do the same thing. We really don't know what power level the Cenobites have got, do we? They, they, they talk big talk, and they come through the walls. And, you know, once you've kind of made a pact with them, that seems pretty binding, and they're able to sort of capture Frank with these strange hooks that come out of nowhere. But beyond that, you know, what powers do they have? Do we know? Yeah. That's, that's, an, that's a question that is answered in a sequel. Okay, but you know, let's base it just on this film. It's fairly undefined, isn't it? Yeah. How, how will they stand up against shotguns and dynamite? That's the key question, yeah. yeah. Well, a beam took one of them out. <laughs> a what did? A beam, the falling beam that took, ah. that took out Butterball. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, if I was doing a mythos cult along these lines, obviously, you know, the Cenobites, like you say, use pleasure and pain, so we'd leave that aside. If I were doing a motivation that would be horrifying within the context of the mythos, I'd probably choose the pursuit of knowledge. That in itself, you know, learning everything there is to know about the universe. We know in Call of Cthulhu, through the Cthulhu Mythos skill, that is the most 
dangerous thing you can do. There are these, you know, perhaps people who, you know, they're not worshipping any particular god or anything like that, but it's an order, you know, maybe even another monastic order that has just gathered enough information together that they are now beyond human concerns in that way that zero-san cultists are, but have also been, you know, transformed by this, are outside space and time. And, you know, what they want to do is share that knowledge. That perhaps, you know, they, they leave hints in books, uh, you know, leave, um, you know, marginal notes and stuff like that. And every now and then, you know, it's almost like, you know, the, the idea in The Call of Cthulhu about the terror of piecing together the wrong bits of information, mm. that they are leaving their own puzzles, these little notes that, you know, the wrong scholar eventually will just piece together. And then they'll get an offer they might not be able to refuse. What about the box? So we've got this fairly enigmatic thing. There's this box that is a puzzle box. But what's the deal with putting that together? Because why does that tag them for being linked to the Cenobites? Well, there's a spell for that in the core rulebook. Gate is box. there now? <laughs> <laughs> is it a gate box then, Seriously, do you it's think? Gate box. Yeah, but do you think the, the, the Hellraiser box is a gate box? Even I guess. down to the line of, you opened the box, we came. Okay. It's pretty much that that is you spending your magic point activating the box of <laughs> the power roll, and boom, there they are. Because I was going to ask, how would you use a box like that in the game? Because in, in the on screen or in the book, it's easy enough to kind of portray it and the characters pouring over it and make that dramatic. But in play, you give it to a PC. What do they then do? Just making a roll seems a bit bland. Uh, the almost facetious way I can see them is that they instead almost use it like it's a a small circular disc, half white, half red, and they say, Pinhead, I choose you. It's suddenly that they throw a um, a gribbly into a situation that they really don't want to be involved in that combat. But, but I mean, as far as implementing it in the first place is concerned, I, I think a lot of that comes down to narration, that um, you say, all right, yes, you find this box or this, you know, this puzzle of whatever description. You know, it's something that happens over a long period of time, and you have to make the right preparations. And I mean, let's, let's think about Frank in that opening scene. I mean, uh, it, this is more explicit in the story, that it's not just the candles around him, but he's put offerings of flowers out and the hearts of doves and blood and stuff like that. Uh, he's masturbated and left his semen across the ground which you know becomes fairly integral in in you know bringing well we learned that in the book right but not in the film yeah you know that's why i was referring to the book these are all things that perhaps in mechanical terms you're doing to give yourself bonus dice well i'm not even sure would you want to if the player character gets the box and says i want to sort of figure it out and and open it and you know that that means the cenobites are going to come would you really ask for a role here because why you, would you want to stop them? You wouldn't, you wouldn't roll to stop them. You'd roll for the circumstances, how much control they had over the situation. And if you think about it, you know, almost in terms of medieval magic, you've got all those implications, you know, to come in a pleasing form and stuff like that, where, you know, the summoner is trying to, you know, is trying to control the summoning as much as possible. Mm. And it's like that with this, that, you know, it's sort of, yeah, yes, come, but, you know, you're not immediately going to tear me, take me away or tear me into bits, that, you know, we're coming to talk to share knowledge. There is a direct example that I can think of that pretty much uses the same Lamant box um, overtone that is a puzzle but not obviously a box it's in a box but it's not a box and that's from Cult um, because a game that draws a lot of its imagery mm. and tone from uh, films such as this 
In the Purgatory Source book, the book that deals with the Nephorites, which are, you can pretty much say, Nephorite, Cenobite, in the same sentence and not be too far apart, that there is a jigsaw puzzle, which that when you start putting it together, um, as you discovered in a game of cult that I recently ran at the the Milton Mm. Keynes Club, that I gave people a role for those that tried to put it together to try and basically stop themselves from going through and completing the puzzle. Because when you complete the puzzle, you find it's actually yourself sitting down in a room in purgatory, finishing this jigsaw puzzle. And lo and behold, you've then got a nephrite that's in the puzzle, stood before you, ready to go, ah, new plaything. And say, is it is a trap, essentially. I don't know, having a jigsaw just doesn't seem right, though, somehow. <laughs> that, that just smacks of, oh my god, we're missing a piece, let's all look down the side of the sofa, see if it's there. Start yeah. off with the edges. <laughs> I've got loads of blue to do. It's all sky. Oh my god! I was going to make some facetious comment there about um, how yeah you, you could then extend that to all sorts of children's toys, and then I thought actually how nightmarish that is. That you know if you have a game of hungry hungry hippos that summons cenobites, you know how how fucked up is that going to be? Yeah, you know, how much is that going to ruin your family holiday? <laughs> There's a brilliant image I saw online of someone that sat down almost with a. Um kind of hippos anonymous meeting where there's a speech bubble above one of these hippos that's just shrugging its shoulders going i don't know i'm just not even hungry but as soon as i see those balls i just can't stop myself (laughs) (laughs) the good friends of jackson elias now have a patreon page think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show the podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary follow the patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com thanks for listening Well, it is that time in the episode once again when we thank the wonderful, generous people who have given us money via Patreon. The money that you pledge to us pays for all our running costs. There are costs associated with putting out a podcast uh, in terms of uh, bandwidth hosting, redeveloping the website, which is something we're doing at the moment, buying the occasional new bit of equipment. And the money that you give us um, pays for all that very nicely. So thank you all very much to each and every one of you. Starting off at the $1 level, well, who do we have, Paul? We have backing from the Esoteric Order of Role Players who are an actual play podcast who record various games, including quite a bit of World of Darkness material. Sounds very cool. Hey, Well, thank you very much. Indeed, thank you very much. And we'll include a link to them on the show notes. We shall. And we have a former backer returning to the fold, which is something we always like to hear. Thank you very much to Ron Fricky. Um, You did tell us how to pronounce your name when you backed us before, and... I, I'm hoping I remember it right, and, well, I think I have. If not, it's all Scott's fault. But anyway, thank you very much, Ron. Thank you, Ron. And next up, we have a good friend that we met over at Necronomicon, Tim McGonagall, um, who also had some very good recommendations at that Korean restaurant we went to in New York. The blogie was wonderful. Yeah. yeah, it was a good evening. Thanks very much, Tim. Yes, thank you very much, Tim. Indeed, thanks, Tim. And now we're moving up to the $3 level. And we want to say a big thank you to Jonathan Meadows. Yes, thank you very much, Jonathan. Indeed. Cheers, Jonathan. Yes, cheers. Cheers. And thank you and cheers to Hugh and Longman. Again, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. So, yes, thank you and cheers. Indeed. Cheers, Hugh and. Cheers, Hugh and. The $5 level, which oh. means. Oh, God. <laughs> we don't just thank them, we, we sing to them. 
one day we're gonna, songs. One day we're going to have a go knock on the door from some kind of false advertising <laughs> complaint commission or something that says, what, what are you doing calling this singing? <laughs> hey, we wouldn't be top of the list for that, surely. <laughs> have you heard modern music? Did it modern sounds? <laughs> it's not like shaking, it shaking fist. It's not like it was in the seventies, is it, Paul? It's not. No, damn it. <laughs> so our first thanks goes out to Jared Tibbs. Yes, thank you very much, Jared. Indeed, thank you, Jared. I'm slowly beginning to realise what it feels like to be a cenobite now, inflicting pain and suffering on people who want it. We have such thanks to give you. Narratives. Come to Jackson. You called, we sang. We thank you, Jared. Also, kind of a double whammy of thanks this time round goes out to Gerald Carla who previously was backing us at the $3 level and, for some insane sadistic reason, has decided to up his pledge to $5. So, thank you very much, Cheryl. I think that's more masochistic considering what we're about to do to his name. Yeah. So, so thank you, Gerald. Thank you, Gerald. Oh, boy. Carla, 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 Carla. Gerald! Now let's take a look at some of the comments we've received online about previous episodes and reviews. So we've had a new iTunes review. Yes, from uh, Trev Shane or Trev Shane or uh, <laughs> TRV Shane. And it's a lovely review. He says, Having come to the good friends of Jackson Elias about a year ago, I have consistently enjoyed it. It is one of only four podcasts I regularly listen to. The hosts, as old friends, have great chemistry. They speak to Mike comfortably and are quick to acknowledge listener input and comments on social media. The show covers horror games and horror films with a clear emphasis on Call of Cthulhu and Lovecraftian fiction. The topics each week range from a study of a story and using it in gaming to a breakdown of a film to gaming tips and techniques. Even if you aren't a horror gamer or Call of Cthulhu gamer, you can find a lot of useful content to bring to any game or work of fiction if you're an author. If you are a Call of Cthulhu keeper, there is more here than you will ever be able to use. This show remains one of my favourites, and I am happy to support them on Patreon. I cannot recommend the podcast enough. Well, thank you very much, Shane. That's uh, that's wonderful. Yeah, indeed. Many thanks. Yeah, yeah, thank you. You know, I am curious as to the listeners, you listeners out there who perhaps aren't gamers. Is our appeal broad enough to extend beyond the gaming community because even when we're doing stories and films uh, we tend to focus on the the gaming aspects of them i know we've got at least one listener who's contacted us who isn't if there are more of you out there we'd love to hear from you and and hear what it is that you find interesting in the show just so we can make sure we you know we, we cater to you as well as everyone else of course, we always like to receive the reviews and read them out, so if anyone else has got any reviews they wish to make, please, by all means, go go up on iTunes and leave us some comments. 
We've included comments from all sorts of different sources on this segment before, but we have never until now included a YouTube comment. Uh, but we had one from Luca Ambrogiani, uh, who commented on the little video that we shot at The Complete Strategist in New York. And Luca says, I got most of my Call of Cthulhu books from The Complete Strategist, but I had no idea you guys were there last August. Imagine my surprise when I opened up my brand new copy of Pulp Cthulhu and found your three signatures. Way to make a cult, uh, I mean, a fan happy. Yeah, it was a pleasure to uh, meet some people there and, do, and sign some books. And yeah, we did also sign a bunch of books on the shelf. A shitload for, of books, I think, more more Unsuspecting um, buyers to, to find. I, uh, I think we did only sign books that we'd been involved with. I don't... I, I, Oh, yeah. I just I just open anything. Just like, yeah, just sign that. Yeah, it's a copy of D and D's got your name on it. Yeah, then. it was a bible. Just you know, put my name in it. It's fine. Yeah, but but yeah, it is worth pointing out that if you are shopping in the Complete Strategist in New York and you're looking for Call of Cthulhu books, at least for the moment, there's a good chance that that whatever you buy will be signed by us. And thinking back to last week's uh, segment of Scott's favourite part of the show, the Lovecraftian Word of the Week. Fortnite. Uh, Daniel Carroll mentioned on G Plus about the use of the word inhuman. He says, I recently revisited the mound, and the denizens of Kinyan are very much inhuman sadists. Not only do they torture and mutilate their captives, they even reanimate them once they die, so they can continue doing so. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good catch, Daniel. It's, um, I mean, The Mound is one of these stories that I haven't read for 30 years. I mean, it's the Lovecraft revisions and collaborations in particular that, yeah, I'm now very, very foggy on. I mean, The Mound in particular is one that I, I think I recently suggested to Matt and Paul that we, we visit on a, an upcoming episode because of its ties to The Call of Cthulhu. I think we probably will end up talking about that one quite soon. Also, over on our Google Plus community, we have a message from Dirk the Dice. Yes, this is relating to our discussion about uh, pace. And he says, My crisis came following a day-long session when I was a player, and the GM allowed digressions, indulgences and languors on the detailed economics of waste management. He was meticulous about the adherence to rules. I was bored stiff. All the players were having fun. They were having fun developing their characters. They were having fun paying attention to the detail. I realised that I was unable to deliver that kind of fun. It's just not within my range. I'd get impatient with it. It was a blind spot of my style. Does that mean that there are certain player itches that I'll never scratch? You know that gave me an immediate flashback to the starting session of Heaven and Earth at the MKRPG Club this long mm. block? I threw in a comment about the fact that the, uh, the town of Potter's Lake had a tomato shortage. Insert half an hour of look, the players looking up on their iPhones what the rates of buying tomatoes by the thousand were um, from, imported from California in 2005 and then scaling that up for modern um, for inflation to compare to the modern day and working out how many tomatoes you'd need to feed a town of 20,000. For God's sake! <laughs> you don't need that kind of minutia! But logistics, <laughs> Matt, logistics. You've got it's, to consider these it's things. It's my day job. I don't want that yeah, at the Matt, table. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Matt, can I point out that I think it was the first time I ran Lamentations of the Flame Princess for you, Robin, Shauna and Louisa, you sat there for something like half an hour trying to work out the economics of dog smuggling. What? 
Yeah, that um, you'd look through the price lists in in Lamentations and worked out that dogs were worth a lot more in the city than they were in the country, whereas the, um, what was it, Spears and Starves, I I can't remember which way round it was. Again, there were price differentials the other way round, and that you worked out that, you know, sort all this adventuring luck. We can make a lot of money. Yeah, you can make money (laughs) taking dogs one way, selling them, buying... Uh, what was it, spears, knocking the tips off the spears, turning them into starves, and then selling them in the other direction. This is why Dungeoneering died out, because just like the capitalist system allows people to make a living without going down into dungeons and shit like that. So, so basically, this is where we went wrong. Yeah, so so really, we we need to create a new Marxist uh, Dungeoneering role-playing game, don't we? I think we do. Yeah. Kobolds and capitalists, or something, <laughs> with a K. <laughs> yeah. And I suddenly have the idea for my second scenario that I've been trying to struggle with to run at Concrete Cow. Hey. <laughs> we'll tear your soul apart. And in conclusion, what are our overall thoughts about Hellraiser? Well, given this film is now thirty years old. I came back to it, not having watched it, I think, since the 80s or maybe very early 90s, a long time ago. You know, I was kind of excited to watch it again, but in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, it's probably going to be a bit of a disappointment. Is this going to be another event horizon? Yeah, I kind of did wonder that. (laughs) But it was great. I mean, it was a little bit, it was a bit dated in places. I mean, the fashions are dated, but you kind of have to expect that. And the the mood kind of halfway through is, you know, sometimes a little bit not not as gripping. But in the final few scenes, I, I was totally hooked on it, hooked on it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the the whole thing with the Cenobites was still really good. And yeah, I thought I thought it, it hung together really well. Yeah, I I was very very pleasantly surprised at how much I still enjoyed it. It's got rough edges. Barker was very inexperienced as a filmmaker when he made this and it shows in places. But I think it always did, right? Yeah. Yes, uh, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe because I'm older and I've seen a lot more films since then, you know, it was even more obvious. None of that did anything to ruin the film for me. Uh, the story is still so, so strong, the images in it are so powerful that, yeah, I, I, I found... Almost no aspect of it that I disliked. What do you make of it, Matt? I quite enjoyed it, but obviously I've seen the second film more, a lot more times than the first one. And while the first one, its main strength is that it is very much a human drama, which say I, I haven't seen it admittedly for a long time since I, before I watched it recently. And I think I appreciated it a lot more this time round than I did on subsequent viewings because of say that emotional depth to it in places. But I still prefer. What comes next? Right, I must rewatch the sequel. I think I've watched one or two of them, but yeah, there are so many. The, th- um, the third one's god awful, but the the second one I loved just just because of its imagery. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in that film that's really influenced me in a lot of how I put description in games. And this time, I found it a lot easier to watch because I can remember the first time or two watching it. You know, back in the late eighties, it being a pretty scary film, a really gruesome, really disturbing film. And almost kind of watch through your fingers kind of film. Whereas now, 
yeah i mean that that stuff is still well done um but i didn't find it had the same impact on me but i guess that's just me yeah i attitudes have changed an awful lot in the last 30 years when this film came out i mean it's difficult to remember now but this was really quite a transgressive film the open use of kind of sadomasochistic imagery the body modification and so on i these were things that we didn't talk about as much in the 80s i mean you know body modification and scarification and you know hell, hell even large-scale piercings were not that common then uh, yeah hell i remember i got my ear pierced in 1983 84 and you know no one else i knew at the time no other men had a pierced ear and i used to get really weird looks just for having an earring in my left ear hmm. i uh, and this was yeah that was only what three years before this was made the world has changed an awful lot since then i think that probably added to the the horror at the time but but then you know we look at them now and it's not like we see people walking around with nails hammered into their skull so it's still pretty extreme yeah. by any measure even though you know there is more body modification and tattooing and piercings are a, you know a fairly everyday thing now i think i would take that any day over that god-awful fashion of julius yeah <laughs> that's the real shock they're right there yeah it still strikes me as being such a bizarre thing, though, that something that was, you know, fairly transgressive at the time, you know, ended up becoming a part of pop culture that, you know, Pinhead in particular uh, has become so iconic that you get bobblehead dolls and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, cuddly Cthulhu's and so on, that you had this figure of nightmare. Uh, well, more than that, this figure of, of sexual nightmare that is now almost safe enough to be a children's toy. I'm going to have to track down a plush Pinhead now. Well, I mean, you go to Forbidden Planet or shops like that mm. and you see all manner of figures from horror films made into toys and and figures and uh so on um you know from jason Voorhees to and you know pinhead's another one but pinhead you know of all of them pinhead is probably the most iconic and sort of strongest image because it's just such a great creation visually so i think mm. that's that's a large part of why he's been such a you know major figure really God, you, you said about his sexuality coming across. Mm. I don't think Pinhead's sexuality comes across very oh, strongly in the film. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, the leather and the piercings and the fact that this is all about the pursuit of sensation. No, I, the, yeah, the, 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 the Cenobites are intensely sexual creatures. We're told they are, but it's not very strongly portrayed on the screen, I don't think, in a very direct way. No, not, not in a direct way, but there's enough of it there that they they feel even more dangerous than you know something that's just going to kill you there's a bit in the uh again in the director's commentary for hellraiser uh, where it's i mean it's actually ashley lawrence talking about it where she says for her first audition that she went along she met clive barker and uh, you know she did um for her audition the scene of which you know there's the revelation about uh you know frank having stolen her father's skin and it's sort of right you know you're there with your uncle he's wearing your father's skin he wants to kill you and fuck you probably in that order go there's that aspect of the film there's the intense sensation aspect to the cenobites you know th th this is not a safe film this is i mean if you give it any thought at all a really sort of dangerous disturbing film in a way that you know most blood-soaked horrors aren't 
We almost got an even more extreme version of that. Unfortunately, it, it never came about. Pasquale Laguier, who made uh, Martyrs, uh, was supposed to be doing a remake of, of Hellraiser back in 2010, which he was going to set in the gay S&M scene. And he wanted to make it a very, very uh, serious kind of sexual film. And the studio basically you know, took one look at it and said, now, nah, fuck this shit. Because they, they decided they wanted a PG-13 version of it that would play well with teens. So More plush centipites. Yeah, and I think this sort of sums up the, you know, the conflict that's there between the pop culture acceptance of, of Hellraiser and what it really is under all that. But I think Hellraiser, as we have it, if it would come out today, I don't think you'd have to edit it very much to get it into a 15 under UK certification. Um, no, but that's more to do with the fact that when it comes down to... Um, you know, what classifications films get, a lot more strength uh, is given to what you specifically see yeah. rather than what is happening. I mean, yeah. yeah, stuff can get 15 or 18 certificates just for the themes and the content. And I think if you did, you know, if you dialed Hellraiser up to 11 these days, you could certainly get an 18 without spilling a drop of blood in it. OK, well, that's it for today. So it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemoustomes.com We'll tear your ears apart. Pain and pleasure. No, wait, just pain. <laughs> <laughs> uh.